so great to see you today. I want to introduce someone that's becoming a friend of our family already. We've heard so much about Reverend Jeremiah Bullock, and he is uh, coming up. Let's give him a Mandan welcome. Please come forward. Oh, what a guy. Well, I'm excited to be here. Morning. Who's, who is in the first service? We had <laughs> ministry teams in the back raising their hand. Anybody stay over from the first service? I had a couple takers. I invited him to stay into the second service. Yeah, I wouldn't have stayed either. No big deal. Okay. <laughs> Open your Bibles up to the book of Revelation and chapter 1. Help, help yourself. Not a big deal. Yes, go to Children's Church Children. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure you know the appropriate ages. Uh, I want to invite you uh, this week. Um, invited a couple of you already this morning, meeting you. Um, and hey, we had parents. Uh, the la- we just did this at a church in Pelham, Tennessee. And it's a kind of a focus for teens in the mornings. But we had adults that were showing up as well. And they were like, you care if we come? <laughs> and it's because we were just doing teaching sessions in the morning. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday in the mornings. Uh, we're going to have a teaching session. We're gathering here about 9.30. Have a very good, uh, nutritious uh, donut breakfast at around 9.30 or so. Around 10 o'clock, we're going to have a teaching session break for about 10 minutes. And 11 o'clock, another teaching session. And uh, we're going to be looking at some uh, fundamentals of Christianity. Do you hear that? Some Fundamentals. Uh, and what I mean by fundamentals is I believe the Christian lifestyle falls apart without these. One of them is how to approach the, the scripture and, uh, and the role that it plays in your life. And the other is going to be on holiness. So the other is going to be on uh, uh, it's the practicality of Jesus reproducing his life through us. And the difference between being a Christian over against doing Christian activities. We believe Christianity is beyond activities. I go to Christian. Be- I, 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 I am a Christian because I go to church on Sunday. Well, you can be a Christian and come to church on Sunday, but you can come to church on Sunday and not necessarily be a Christian. So we're not into activities. Uh, we're not into uh, the list of rules and do's and don'ts. Uh, we're into a person, a relationship with Jesus Christ, a vibrant relationship with God, uh, by which we're changed and spills through our life on a daily basis. We want that. So, hey, if you would like to participate in that in the mornings, uh, you need to come in a teen fashion, and uh, which means excited. Nothing about you can wear whatever you want in terms of dress, but uh, I'll be more. Uh, oh, you're not just praising the Lord. You have a question. Yes. I have a question. Oh. I'm going to answer one. The rest of them I answer after church. Fair enough? I believe if you're a Christian, you're going to come to church. And I believe the scripture supports that. I believe it's hard to be a Christian. Virtually impossible to be a Christian without coming and being a part of a body of Christ. No more questions. I talk the rest of the time. Okay. So, we want to invite you. Uh, the rest of this week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, if you want to be here. If you're a teen in the afternoons, we've got some really neat things uh, involved. And I think your kids will get a kick out of it. If you can give them a, a break on their chores uh, or get them up early. I know the university ministry team normally spends two or three hours in prayer. So they're going to get up at four every morning instead of eight. So they can be a part of uh, uh, those sessions. So you may want to do the same kind of thing. 
want to share with you out of uh, Revelation this morning and want to continue looking at what we looked at in the first service uh, and kind of just with an approach to the book of Revelation. Uh, if I were to give you a basic working uh, uh, diagram, or not diagram, a division, a breakdown, if you were to take the book of Revelation and try to uh, divide it up to kind of get a handle on it, you could do that very simply. We believe that the book of Revelation, and as do most scholars believe, the book of Revelation can be divided up into three basic sections. Okay, three basic sections. Uh, an introduction, the focus of the introduction, uh, meaning who the introduction is given to, and then uh, the prophecy itself, which is what's being introduced. The first chapter is the introduction, and that's because everything going on in this first chapter is for the purpose of introducing, um, and I'll divide that up for you really quickly. In fact, we've taken this introdu- uh, introduction, are you with me? Okay, I want to make sure. We've taken this introduction, and we've kind of divided it up into four pieces. There's four aspects to the introduction. This morning, we're going to look at verses 5 through 8, which makes up a certain piece, but here's how we divide the first chapter, the introductory chapter up. The first three verses make up the prologue. If you have an NIV, you're going to note right above verse one, there's a little word there in italics that reads prologue. That's one section, one piece of the introduction. Uh, From verses four down through 5a is the next section in the introduction. That's the persons section. So you have prologue and then persons. And that's where our one God in three persons are introduced to us. This is the God that is going to be speaking to us throughout the book of Revelation. This is our Christian God. He is one God in three persons. Prologue persons. Verses 5b down through verse 8 is the praise section, which is what I really want to share with you this morning. Good stuff. And then from verses 9 down through the end of the first chapter, which is where we're going to be at Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, that is the Patmos section. Uh, where John receives his commission to write down the prophecy. So you have the prologue, persons, praise, Patmos section. Everything going on in this first chapter is for the purpose of introducing. First section in the book of prophecy. Chapters 2 and 3 make up the second section. And that's the focus of the introduction. Meaning that uh, the introduction of the prophecy is given to these seven churches. Okay, And what's being introduced is from chapter 4 on, which is the prophecy itself. So you have, the, you have the introduction to the prophecy, you have the seven churches in the province of Asia, which is where the introduction is given to, and then the, what's being introduced was the prophecy itself. I want to center some uh, time with you this morning, just get, getting into verses 5b down through verse 8, which is the praise section. Are you going to pay attention? you with me? Everybody listening? Not talking? Okay. Teens, if I see you talking, I'll call on you. As well as college students and adults. I want to spend some time in the praise section with you. Um, really got interested in the book of prophecy. And if I were to just describe it to you, we spent about a year studying it. And, and it, it started off being our own kind of personal introduction or a personal uh, devotional time thing. And uh, just kind of, you know, getting into it. Never intended really to preach this stuff. But uh, uh, it became so instrumental and significant in my life. Um, I begin to share it in these kinds of settings. If I were to describe the book of Revelation to you, I would tell you that it's not a focus on end-time events. Uh, you can't look in the book of Revelation to find out when, find out when gas prices are going to go down. Um, 
You can't look in the book of Revelation to pinpoint who the Antichrist is, you know, whether he's Democrat or Republican. Uh, see, you can't, uh, you can't find, there, there's no specific timeline. If you study, you'll find out when Jesus comes back. Um, there are significant events. There, there is an Antichrist that's coming uh, in the spirit of all the Antichrist that's been talked about since the time of Jesus uh, and, 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 you know, the, uh, the resistance of his message. Uh, there is one coming like that. There are significant events and unfolding of you know, catastrophes in the movement of God. Those are all there. But the focus of the book of Revelation is on everything that God set out to accomplish in our redemption is found complete here. You don't have to guess. We don't have to say, wow, hope it works out. You don't have to do that. God created man. Man fell from whom God created him to be. God set out to redeem man. We see that redeemed man presented in the book of Revelation. The example of the very first one is Jesus. The focus, the focus of this revelation is on him. It's the unveiling. In fact, the first verse, what we looked at in the first service, is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. The unveiling of what redeemed man is to look like. The first Adam fell. Paul says the second Adam came along and demonstrated to us how man was created to live. So what's going on inside of Jesus is supposed to go on in you and I. His passions are to be our passions. Not to do stuff. We don't look at Jesus and say, I'll do the things that he does. That's not the gospel. The gospel message is, is that when the Holy Spirit lives in me, I'm transformed into the person that I've been called to be. That I can feel the way that he feels. See the way. And as, just as a side note, I guess, and we need to hurry because pastor said, I got to have you out here by 2.30. But... Uh, if I were just to give you, honestly, if I were just to give you a piece of my heart on this, um, I, I want to be a Christian. I do. I, I want to be the real deal. Um, I'm so tired of just doing Christian stuff. I don't just want to come to church on Sunday, you know, and read my Bible like I'm supposed to read my Bible and do all the do's and not all the don'ts. You know, I don't smoke, drink, or chew or go with girls who do, and I don't lie. And I don't say, oh, I pay my tithe, you know, and, and those kinds of things. And none of those are bad. And Christians, hey, Christians have things they do and Christians have things they don't do. But see, we believe that Christianity is beyond activities. Um, that you can come to church and Christians come to church. But you can come to church and not be a Christian. You can read your Bible and have scripture knowledge. The enemy knows this from cover to cover, yet has no insight. So we believe that you can, you can uh, you know, tithe to the church and you can give generously to the ministry and, and, and to ministers and to evangelists. And we encourage that. But see, you can, you can do that kind of stuff. Honestly, you can do that kind of stuff and not be the real deal. See, I, I, I do. You want to know what's on my heart. I want to wake up in the morning and feel the way that he feels. Laugh at the jokes that he would laugh at. Be appalled at the things that he would be appalled at. The passions of his heart would be the passions of my heart. To experience in my bones what he experiences in his. See, this is the life that you and I have been, have been uh, invited to participate in. The life that Jesus lived was not superhuman. It was ordinary, average, everyday Christianity. I figured you'd cheer over that. It's, Jesus was a superman. He was ordinary, average, everyday, don't get into heaven without it, Christianity. Okay, we believe that. Which is really significant. 
Now, that's, that's the focus of the book, and that's what's being introduced to us. Now, verses 5b down through verse 8 is a, is, a, is a really interesting section because everything in the first chapter is just loaded with significance. We're going to be walking through some of it this week, but the first three verses, the prologue, really significant because what John does is he introduces to us the prophecy. Everything I just told you is introduced to us in those first three verses. We just unpacked it, uh, unpacked it a little bit. But um, that's, it's a really significant section. The persons. Our one God and three persons, the Trinity. Uh, we just taught a, a course on this, and it was uh, verses 4 and 5a, really significant. Uh, the Patmos section and the commissioning to write the gospel, and, and you're going to see how significant that is, and uh, it was really great. Verses 5 through 8, is, it's the praise section, and praise is significant. Uh, worship, music is significant. Uh, God inhabits the praise of his people. But I've almost been tempted, and I, I've, I've struggled with whether or not I should use that terminology or not, but I've almost been tempted at times, you, you skip praise. You, you skip the praise section, you, you know, and, uh, and you would say, why? Well, it's because, uh, well, you know, he's just really excited, and he's saying, yes, and he's praising. And, but being that it's in the, the first chapter, and being that it's an introductory kind of section for the entire prophecy, it has some weight to it. And so I really, I really dealt with it. And what I dealt with was the content of the praise, which we're going to get, at, uh, get to in a moment. But the content of the praise is really significant. But one of the things I began to find, and did not anticipate this, uh, it just uh, it jumped out at me. It's one of those times, I guess, to describe it is when you get into a passage of Scripture and you expect to kind of yawn your way through it or, or you go through it to get, something, to, you know, to get to something else. And then you find significance in that, that, you know, it's wow, it, it does that to you. Um, the genealogy of Matthew. You know, no one wants to get up in the morning and say, I'm going to do my devotions out of the genealogy. Wow, it's going to be great. <laughs> we all start at verse, you know, uh, 19 <laughs> or verse 18. You know, it's like, okay, so-and-so, whatever. Okay, you know, and then we, we, we skip that. That's what I, and whether wrong or right, that's what I did with, with praise um, and worship. And I guess if I were to be really <laughs> honest with you, and praise and worship is necessary. Okay, it's necessary. Praise the Lord. It's necessary. But I'm a preacher. Okay, I preach. In fact, if the praise team got sick, that's more preaching. Not that I wish that or anything. You know, praise is significant. But I, I'm, I'm message-oriented. I'm proclamation of the gospel-oriented. I'm let's get into the word-oriented. And I, I, that's really significant. And when you get into the book of Revelation, if you were to ask me, the tone of the kingdom, what's most significant, I would have said it's the message. And it is significant. And it's the, it's the tone, it's the central, it's, it's what's going on. It's, it's, the, it's the accomplishment of everything that God has set out uh, in, our, in our life, our redemption. That's the message. But what I found is that message is bracketed throughout the book of Revelation in praise. In fact, without praise, the message doesn't quite work. It's almost like, if I could describe it to you, the message is the heart. Without the heart, everything dies. But the heart and all the significance of the heart and the organs of, of, I mean, the guts of the whole book of Revelation is hung on the backbone of praise. And what's being introduced to us in verses 5 down through verse 8 is exactly this. The praise is literally hung, or the message is literally hung on praise. And so uh, this became a revelation to me when I began to deal with the praise section here and, and why it was significant. It just, it just propelled me into the prophecy itself, which starts in chapter 4. 
And what I learned was that every single chapter, this was so overwhelming to me, every single chapter as the message unfolds, it unfolds in the midst of praise. Praise is really, really significant. In fact, I could go as far as to say every single person in the kingdom has a heart of praise. Every single person in the kingdom is involved in praise. Everyone is, yes. And if you are not, yes, you're not in the kingdom. There are no grumblers in the kingdom. Not my idea. Not my message. Just, there are none. See, no one's walking around the kingdom going, no one's doing that. In fact, one of the significant things we found regarding praise in the book of Revelation, no one's arguing about the kinds of praise. Seriously. No one's, no one's in the kingdom going, wow, it would have been great, but I was looking, really, I was looking for more choruses when it came down to it. I mean, just, you know. No one's going, I'm a hymn person. No one's saying, well, I don't run around and jump and dance. Everyone is absolutely caught up in praise. Hysterical with praise. Let me give you a couple examples of this because you're looking like you don't buy it. Let me uh, flip over with me to chapter 4. Again, you have the introduction, chapter 1. Chapter 2 and 3 is these seven churches uh, that, uh, hey, he's introducing all of this to them. And what's being introduced is from chapter 4 on, which is the actual prophecy future stuff itself. Uh, You come into chapter (laughs) 4, this is so neat, you come into chapter 4, and the chapter begins with John caught up in the midst of a praise scene. Uh, He tells you there, he hears this voice, says, get up here, John, and at once, verse 2, he is in the spirit, and he's caught up in the heavenly heavenly realms in a throne room scene. And verse 3, he, uh, he makes an attempt to describe the person that he sees sitting on the throne. And you're going to learn through chapters 4 and 5 that the person on the throne is the Father. And he tries to describe him in verse uh, 3. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. Uh, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Probably suggesting that's his glory. I mean, it's just this, wow, how do you put that into words? In chapter 4, or I'm sorry, excuse me, in verse 4, he then tells us that there were 24 uh, elders and other thrones. So there's other thrones, and they had elders sitting on those thrones, and they're encircling the throne, which is really significant. And then you come down into verse 5, and it tells you in the midst of this whole scene that you have, uh, of course, flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. And then around the throne also were these um, lamps, these seven lamps, which, uh, of course, he explains as are the seven spirits of God. So that's the Holy Spirit that's encircling the throne. Uh, verse 6, he talks about a sea of glass. He's giving a lot of content. He comes down in the middle of verse 6 and it gets confusing. You've got these four living creatures that he, he describes in verses 7 and 8 who are around the throne and, and all the details of them. They've got eyes everywhere. And then by the time you come down to the end of verse 8, after kind of saying, hey, I was caught up into this in the heavenlies and I'm in the midst of this throne room. God's on his throne. Wow. 24 other thrones. Not really sure what that's all about. Four living creatures kind of scared me. And then, of course, you have the Holy Spirit there. It's just, just, you know, phenomenal, just awesome scene that I'm seeing. Then he tells you what they're doing. He tells you what they're doing. At the end of verse 8, it says, Day and night, they never stopped 
saying. So this is constant. This is you know, never see, you know, it's, it's unceasing. It's never stopping. It's always going on. They never stop saying, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That's the four living creatures. They're constantly praising in response to the glory of God. Verse 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders. And you're going to note, and you're going to see this, and we can't go through the complete details of this, but as it's, he could have just said, yeah, they were getting it, you know, they were getting at it up there. I mean, they were praising up there. It was something else. But he doesn't just say that. It's, it's, he quotes what they were saying as if that's significant. And, and he's elaborate on what they... I mean, and, and the praise is so, uh, dare I say, liturgical. It's, I mean, they're involved. It's not they're just sit there singing. I mean, they're acting out. And for instance, he talks about what the 24 elders do in verse 10. They fall down before him who sits on the throne who worship, uh, and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne. And the details of what they're saying is in verse 11. And then the chapter ends. So the whole, get this, this is really, I thought this really profound. The whole first chapter is given over to John being taken up in the midst of a praise and worship scene where there is elaborate praise and worship going. He describes everybody who is there and what they're doing. And they're all praising. First chapter has to do with praise. You're not impressed. Let's go to chapter 5. No, you're impressed. But let's go into chapter 5, in the, just really quickly. In the midst of this scene, uh, chapter 4, the praise and worship scene, John says he looks over and he sees in the right hand of him who sits on the throne a scroll. And you're going to be familiar with this if you've ever uh, read through Revelation. Um, of course, the, the scroll is the, is the uh, contents of God's plan of redemption for us. And there's going to be steps, and the unfolding of God's plan is going to be through kind of steps. Uh, those steps are with seals. And we know that on this scroll, there are how many seals? Seven seals. So he sees this said uh, in the right hand of him who sits on the throne, seven seals. And, of course, an angel proclaims in a loud voice. In the midst of this praise uh, session, he comes up to the podium, and he says, Hey, who on earth or under the earth, or hey, is there anyone who is worthy to receive this scroll and look at its contents. And of course, there's no one is found worthy. Verse 4, John begins to fall apart. Uh, verse 5, one of the elders comes up to him, cracks him on the head, says, pull yourself together, man. Don't weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. And by the way, this morning we looked at when Jesus is presented, he's not just presented with name and title, he's presented with person. And even here, he doesn't say Jesus. See, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. See, he's the root of David. He is triumphed. <laughs> it's really, really neat. He's able to open the scroll and look at its side. So Jesus approaches the Father in the midst of the praise and worship scene, receives the scroll from the Father in verse 6. Uh, he saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. Uh, describes him. He comes and he takes the scroll in verse 7. And then in verse 8, in response to this, you still with me? In verse 8, in response to this, all praise and worship shift to what God is accomplishing through Christ. It's really significant. You have the unfolding of the plan of God, which is, a, which is brought about by his right hand, held in his right hand, the scroll. Jesus comes at the right hand of God, receives the scroll, and therefore the plan of God is unfolding through Jesus Christ. Period. That's really significant. The plan of God unfolds through Jesus, not through anyone else. Which means if you and I are going to be praising God, if you and I are going to be into God, if you and I are going to be, hey, I, I want God to bring about what he wants to bring, out, uh, bring about in my life, I need to be into Jesus, period. Talking about Jesus, wrapped up into Jesus, all about Jesus. 
because the plan's coming through him. So he comes in verse 8, or verse 7 and does that. Verse 8, the praise shifts to what God is accomplishing in Christ. Verse 8. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Now get this. Each one had a harp. So they got a band. They got this little makeshift band put together. Okay? And they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. So they'd been working on this little ditty. And they said, hey, let's, let's put it in right here. And they sang a new song that had never been sung before. The contents of that song are given to us in verses 9 and 10. In response to that, John looks over. <laughs> the language is really neat. Because John is up there taking all this in. Whoa. And he sees this over here. And it's phenomenal. Jesus comes in the scroll. And, and he, all this is unfolding. And they begin to praise and worship. And wow. And look what's happening. And he looks over and he sees this over here. What he sees is verse 11. Then I looked and heard, get this, voices. The voices of many angels numbering thousands Upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousands, they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice they sang. So, in the entire angelic host of heaven, get in on the praise and worship. And the content of what they sing is in verse 12, focused on Jesus. Verse 13. Then I heard, <laughs> listen to this, then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing. You have snails getting in on the worship scene here. Goldfish. Every creature that has ever been created pauses and says, wow. And the content of what they sing is in verse 13. Verse 14, in response, the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. The first two chapters and all the content of the message is hung on the backbone of praise. If you want to know, and this is really important to me, a telltale sign of a person who's living in the plan of God as it's unfolding it and they're seeing it and witnessing it, the telltale sign that that's happening is they're going, wow, isn't he good? And the person who's not, they're obviously not seeing it. Because you cannot help but the praise when you see God's hand move. Now, obviously not your church, but all the other churches in the world. Uh, it's interesting that, and we've been around to some of those, where we see people come in. This bothers me. Don't do this. This bothers me to see people come in. And you have this overwhelming movement of God. And, and people are getting saved. And, and everybody's so excited. And this and that is wonderful. And then you walk out on the foyer. And someone's laying into pastor about the dirt on the floor. <laughs> Or about the song that was pick something and they miss the entire I've had people come up to me and say out of the whole message here's what you did wrong <laughs> I do that all day hey, I, I'm gonna get all kinds of things wrong not message oriented I don't believe um, but to miss the entire movement of God and all caught up in that is a biblical, not my idea. That is a biblical telltale sign that they're not seeing the kingdom. Uh, I get, you know, I can't tell you how convicting this has been for me. Do you know how bad I gripe and complain about gas prices? Jeremiah, where's your home? <laughs> That's not right, man. What happened to God as a plan? And he's, he provides a provision for the plan. I must not believe that. That's a constant reminder to me. 
See, it's, it's the person who goes down to their job and they absolutely hate it. This is so funny. And my cousin, and my cousin loves Jesus and we tease each other about it. I called him, um, this was about three weeks ago. I was at training camp and we were touching base over, he watches boxing and stuff and I, we, I was keeping up with him and he watches some of the, some of the uh, mixed martial arts stuff and I was calling him about it and, and uh, he, was, he was into that for years and, and uh, um, I asked him how, how his job was going. He says, oh, I've been working six days a week, 10-hour days. He has to drive an hour and a half to work, and he works seconds. And I'm just like, good, I'm glad I don't have a job. That's, that's got to be terrible, you know. I mean, just to have to get up and go to a work, that'd be terrible. But, uh, you know, um, uh, we were talking about it, and I said, how, how long have you been doing this? He says, six months. And, of course, he's got kids, and you know. And, and uh, I said, how, how long is it till you retire? He was like, 37 years, four months, and five days. I mean, he knew it down to the day, you know, kind of a thing. And, and I just told him, I said, you know, if I thought like that, if I was faced with what you're faced with, with that mindset, I'd, I'd, I couldn't handle it. I'd, I'd go crazy. I don't think I'd go as far as I'd shoot myself, but you never know, you know. If I had to face my job as going to work for money every day, I don't think I could handle that. If I saw my job in light of the kingdom, that God created me as a carpenter, God created me as a farmer, God said, I desperately need an accountant down there to go and be in the midst of that. And that was my church. That was my ministry. And I was a vessel by which he poured. And you walk down on Monday and you come in the job and you walk in the factory and go, whoa, man, did I miss you guys. (laughs) You'll stand out, first of all. But the big deal is, is that there is an overwhelming sense of I'm a part of something that's not just monotonous. The unfolding of the plan of God in my life, and, and I rejoice, and no weapon formed against me shall prosper, and he's bringing about his plan. That's the tone. And you, and you think, come on, that's stretching it. Do you realize what the plan of God meant for the church in this day? Do you realize what the people were going? This is a praise section. All the people are praising. John is praising in verse 5. Do you know what happened to John? John is praising. Do you know where he's located? People brag on Paul as he preaches from the Philippi prison. And, and you should. Rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice as he's sitting in prison. Do you know John is in a glorified concentration Roman prison camp? That he was boiled in oil before he was sent here? Tuesday night, we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 20 as he talks about why he's here. There is no victim language in Paul's or in John's language. He's not a victim of his circumstances. (laughs) You ask him why he's on the island of Patmos? Because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. (laughs) That's significant. There's no victim language. I'm caught up in the plan of God. I'm being used by him in my circumstances. And where I am, God is with me. And he's bringing him on. And no, no weapon formed. And they're praising. They're praising in the midst of their circumstances. Boy, we're bad as Americans, aren't we? Well, I can't go out to eat anymore this week. It just seems like our suffering is a little bit different. Not, that, not to demean it. I mean, I'm not, hey, not to, down, no, not to downplay it, you know, in terms of our lifestyles and, and our routines and those kinds of things. And, hey, I have those kinds of things as well. But literally, it's, it's a perspective it's a perspective that they have. They have a heart of praise. Let me give you one more quick example. If you look at the church, Jesus, uh, look at Smyrna. Uh, if you come into the second church in chapter 2, the church of Smyrna, Jesus speaks to this church and he says, this is so significant. Jesus says, 
uh, I am the first and the last, verse uh, 8, who died and yet came to life again. He says in verse 9, listen to this, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. (laughs) Perspective. 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 I want to have a perspective of praise. I want to have that. And I, just as a, as a personal application kind of a thing for me, um, there's nothing like living in my motorhome and seeing God move in the, work, uh, move in the midst of and completing his work uh, in my kids and watch them as they pray. I got a three-and-a-half-year-old, a little holy terror, <laughs> uh, and there's holy in that, you know. Uh, I mean... But um, he goes in the nursery, and they, most nurseries have the TV, you know, where they can see the preacher preaching and hear the band and all that. And they all tell me the same thing when I go to pick him up from church to church. They say, when you come on, he goes, that's daddy. And he stops what he does, and he sits there, and he watches. And he's like looking, and, and then he mimics me. He does, he mimics me. And you can ask the interns, you ask him, you want to be a singer? He's like, I want to be a preacher. And he preaches. He'll line up all the kids in the nursery, sit down, you know, and he'll grab his little pulpit and, you know, and he preaches. He yells, Jesus and Jesus. And we were at the church last week in Pelham, uh, two weeks ago in Pelham, and he got up on, uh, on, the, on the pulpit and he's preaching and he's, and hey, yeah, but he's, he's mimicking me and, and he wants to be like his dad. And, and I mean, I, I hope that plays out until he's 18 years old. That he wants to be into Jesus and that he wants to be in his word. And, and I see the influence that God's making in his life and, and the little things that's happening and those. And I mean, who can see that and not go, wow, you're so good, God. I mean, you're absolutely so fantastic. Who could not see God move in the midst of your teen group, in the midst of what happens this week and not say, wow, it's worth every bit of dirty carpets we have. It's worth every bit of it, man. It's worth every bit of it. It's worth every bit of it. Now, uh, that's, the con- that's, the, I did, that's just to introduce what we want to look at. <laughs> uh, but we're, we're going to hurry. If you look from verse 5 down through verse 8, all of this is praise. Okay? I haven't given you the content of the praise. And by the way, the content of the praise is really significant. Everyone is praising. Everyone is seeing the plan of God move. Everyone is saying, I'm watching God's hand unfold. Everyone is saying, I'm a part of that. And it's great. It's good to look at the content of the praise. Because this is also convicting. Because the content of their praise is oftentimes not the content of our praise. See, the content, the content of their praise has nothing to do with personal gain. I won the lottery. Not that I play. Um, I didn't get pulled over. It wasn't my flat tire. The week went, went by unscathed. Gas prices went down. See, the content of their praise has nothing to do with personal gain. See, they're not saying, yes, got the week off with pay. That's what they're not, see, they're not all excited about that. I mean, that's, they, they like that stuff. See, they're praising in the midst of lives falling apart. Being roasted alive, burnt on a stake, boiled in oil. You would say, they're praising about that? No, they're saying, that's, you know, that's not fun. They're not lunatics. No one likes that kind of stuff. But see, the content of their praise is, I'm a part of the plan, man. That God is bringing about his plan in my life and in their midst. Listen to how John, we're going to look at verse 6 specifically, two quick things. But in verse 5 he says, this is the content of his praise. This is what he's all, you know, bothered about. This is what he's all yes about. He says in verse 5, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. 
What he's saying is, if I could, this is, we have a whole sermon dedicated to just verse 5, so I'll summarize it. But he says, I have been freed from the way that I've always been. <laughs> I don't have to be the way that I've always been. I don't have to be a victim of my home life growing up as a child. That doesn't have to define me. That doesn't have to dictate my self-worth. Are you listening to me? That, that, that's not who I am. I've been freed from a life of sin. Not only the life of sin that I produced, it's sins. It's plural. Which doesn't negate the idea of the sin that literally that I lived in, but it's all the realm of sin and the, and the work of the enemy and the hurt and the pain that I caused and received. I've been freed from that. Now, this is really significant. God, I'm finding uh, that in these days, there's a whole, well, I guess in, in particular would be my generation and probably the generation that's in college now, not everyone. But it seems like there's this big temptation to gravitate toward God overlooking our sin. Oh, well, yeah, you know, uh, you lie. Hey, that's okay. God loves you anyway. Well, yeah, God loves you, but not to overlook that in your life. That's death. He didn't come to overlook your sin. He come to free you from sin. See, sometimes we look at sin as, oh, well, yeah, it's something bad that I've done. And yet, you know, I don't stop loving my son when he sins. And so God just kind of overlooks it and loves me anyway in spite of it. Um, trash that whole line of thinking because it's quite frankly, it's not biblical. Absolutely, it's not biblical. God has not come to overlook your sin. God has come to free you from sin. He does not want you to be the way you've always been. Why? Because it's going to kill you and everyone around you. And so he wants to free us. And that's what he's, hey, that's what he's saying. I'm freed from that. Let loose. <laughs> I've been let loose from that. Literally, the idea, and the idea is this is given to us as the example of Jesus. Ultimately, when he died with our sin upon him and he descended into the depths, Paul says, even into hell, sin and death had no hold on him. He went into hell and said, wow, what's going on? And they said, ah! And he raised from that place. That sin and death had no hold on him. First John says it could not comprehend him. It could not withstand, uh, 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 control him. It could not grab a hold of him. So the idea of what he's praising about, and Paul is huge on this, is that I have been freed from the way that I've always been. I've been freed from the pain I've always been in. Okay? Now, here's also significant, what we want to look at today. Not just freed from my circumstances to hang out until I die and go to heaven, which is the big retirement in the sky. Yeah, it's, it's not that. It's not I'm freed from my sin to kind of just do my own thing. You're freed for purpose. And that's what the passage says. He says, I've been freed from my sin by the work of what God has done in Christ by his blood. And I have been made, verse 6, to be two things. There, there may be emphasis and other things stated in the New Testament. Paul, or excuse me, John is praising about two things. That he says, I've been freed, one, to be a kingdom, and two, to be a priest. So literally, those who are in the kingdom, those who are all excited and seeing God's hand, they're excited about two things. One, I've been freed from the way I've always been, that God is redeeming me in Christ, bringing about what he's dreamed from my life, and I have been freed from all of that to be a kingdom and priest. Notice, I haven't been freed just to go to a kingdom. I've been freed to be a kingdom. I found it really, really important that in the book of Revelation, there is a city that we're going to live in. There's physical stuff. There's going to be a physical economy, all that kind of stuff. We're physical people. We're going to have physical, new physical bodies. Okay? I mean, we're going to have all of that. But that's not called kingdom. The kingdom is not a place. I mean, I guess it is a place. We are the kingdom. 
Specifically, John says, I have been free to be a kingdom. You know what the word kingdom means? It is a place of rule. It is a place of territory ruled by a king. That I have been freed from the way I've always been, from the sin and the death and the bedlam and the hurt, to be a place where his absolute rule and authority is expressed. So I am to live in my world to be the demonstration of what a 35-year-old man looks like who is under the absolute rule and authority of Jesus Christ. In other words, my emotions are under his authority. My, My bodily drives are under his authority. All the fruit of the Spirit kind of deal. I am under his authority. I'm not, hey, I'm not subject to my, my body. That's an old sin thing. When Paul says in Romans that I, hey, I do what I don't want to do and I don't want all that kind of stuff, notice all that stuff comes before life in the Spirit. That I don't have to be the way that I've always been. I don't have to be subject to my world. I don't have to be driven by my bodily drives. I don't have to be de- driven by my emotions. My sex drive does not have to, dim- does not have to dictate my steps. Money does not have to determine me. My emotions don't have, to retur- don't have to rule my life. I've been freed from all that to be a place of his absolute rule and authority. <laughs> An expression of a person who's under control. Not because of what I've done, because of what he's done. The second aspect, take a little bit longer to explain. I've been created to be a priest. Now, bummed is not the right word. I'm okay with being a priest. But scholars tend to associate priest with pastor. Not a pastor. Pastor has to work. I do not have to work. I am an evangelist. Ministry students, check into evangelism. It's phenomenal. Okay? See, I'm an evangelist. And when I begin to study the idea of the priesthood, they literally said the priest is similar to the modern-day pastor. Do you know some of the responsibilities? By the way, the priest is the oldest established order in, uh, in Judaism, in God's kingdom. I mean, it was, it, it was you know, back down before uh, Abraham. Personally, I believe, you want to know how I feel about it, Adam was the first priest, and his parish was the world that came under his authority, the animals, which is why when he fell into sin, everything went... So we were created and are restored, listen to me, into the priesthood. And I went, so I went back and I just familiarized myself with the priesthood. Even before, really, uh, Aaron and his sons and the Levites and all of that, the, the details of the, you know, the Levites and their roles. But even up to the time of Jesus and in and Orthodox Judaism, the roles of the priest were just more than I thought. For instance, we obviously know that the priests were in charge of all the teaching uh, uh, you know, and that was divided up into the Pharisees eventually, but they were responsible for the reactments, that kind of teaching. Like they, they went the detailed reactments uh, of the, um, of the uh, uh, out of Egypt, you know, the, um, the whole Passover deal, and they, they reacted all that and all the liturgy. But the priests were also the ones who were in charge of the choir. They not only were in charge of the choir, they made up the choir. They weren't only in charge of the choir and all the liturgy and reenactments and teachings, but they were the ones who were in charge of the temple and its maintenance. Mowing the lawn. (laughs) Not that you do that. But hey, mowing the lawn. Repairing the buildings. That was priest stuff. Did you know the priests were the makeshift doctors of their day? Yeah. See, if you had a foot fungus, that would make you clean or unclean unclean could you go and worship in the temple unclean 
No. Fell under the authority of the priest. So you had athlete's foot. The priest had to come check you out. He said, put Tanactin on it. I'll come back in a week. And you were literally kept outside the temple for seven to ten days or whatever they had to do. And the law gave you specifics on how to treat those things and what to do. If your house had a fungus, okay, had an had a, had a, a infestation of animals or, or, or insects or that made your house, they were the makeshift orchid men. <laughs> the priests were. They would come and say, clean this nasty place up. Or, you know, and then they, literally they would denounce that place as being unclean. Those were all the roles. Anything pertaining to the ministry of God and its people came under the authority of the priest. Did you know? Did you know that's what you've been freed for? Not just him. So we can't look at him and say, mow the lawn. (laughs) You're a priest. And anything pertaining to the ministry of God, and this was so fantastic. When you take the priest and you put him in the, in the social structure of his day, you know, the, this, this was really interesting. You know the celebrity, they had like a celebrity list in their day and age, and the celebrity list even above the king was the prophet. Evangelist? He, it was the prophet. Okay? He was the one that came to town with the fresh word of the Lord and fire fell and this happened. And I mean, when the prophet came to town, hey, be careful. If you came against him, lions would come and eat you. I mean, hey, you don't mess with them. Okay? They were the big time mover shakers. Underneath them, celebrity status was the king. Underneath them was the synagogue rulers, authorities, um, you know, officials, government people. Um, you would go down the list. And at the bottom was the priest. He was not celebrity material. He was considered the day in and day out. The kingdom does not function. God's work does not function without the priest. If the tabernacle was going to be moved from here to here, if the movement of God was going to happen from here to here, guess who's involved? Two things. One, does that describe your life this morning? Because I'm under the impression that I go to church on Sunday doesn't quite fit that description. What if I told you that the movement of God is not going to happen down at your job without you? Because he nor I can get into the public high schools. That's your teacher's ministry, not mine. And I'm not going. And I'm not a children's worker. That's not my calling. Well, I have two. Youth ministry. Yes, at the church, but I can't be a father to your kids. That's your job. I'm not a carpenter. That's your job. See, I'm not a... See, what if... And this is not hard to buy. What if, literally, God created you and I out of his dreams? When I was a Christian, I became a Christian in 1995. I wasn't raised in a Christian home. In fact, I grew up Mormon, which is not Christian at all. And I I grew up, and and I grew up in a religious family, but not a Christian family. I rebelled against the whole system and ran away from that deal and did my own thing. And uh, got saved in 1995. Um... I wasn't an evil person. I just liked to, I was a typical young 19, 20 year old party guy. Liked to drink and do drugs. And it about killed me. And I was discharged from the military with a bad discharge in 95. And a Christian family took me in their home. And I saw for the first time in my life real deal Christians that were the same on Sunday as they were on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. They put a Bible in my hand. I began to read it. I thought, whoa! 
There's a book in there with my name on it. Jeremiah. So I read that dude. And the first opening sections is God comes to this priest named Jeremiah. And this is what he says. He says, before you were born, I knew you. (laughs) That I have a purpose for your life. That I've created you and I've got this plan. And I want to use you. And God said, I'm calling you to preach. And I'm like, get out of here. And he created me for that. What would happen if you saw your life in that kind of manner? That I've been created. And the movement of God is not going to be the same without me. That he's called you, plan of God. He's called you not just to go down and work and make a living until I can retire and go down to Florida. That's so worldly. What would happen if, if you were created to go down to your job and be the vessel, be the priest that God wants to use in the midst of that place and the movement of God from here to there, the movement of the tabernacle in the Old, Old Testament to the movement of God in these days are not going to take place without you. And I believe you'll be held accountable for that. I believe I'll be held accountable for the ministry to my children. That if golf is too important to me, if golf is more important if ministry to other people are more important than my own kids, I'm going to be held accountable because he can't be a pastor to my kids. That's my job. So you and I have been called to participate in the movement. (laughs) I've been called to participate in the movement of God in my world. I've been freed to be a place underneath his absolute rule and authority, the expression of what God looks like in a 35-year-old body. called as a priest so the movement of God could take place. And so I stand in the middle of my world and go, wow, isn't he so good? You have that going on in your life? Or do you just show up to church on Sunday? Jesus said many on that day are going to say, Lord, Lord. And he's going to shake his head and say, I never knew you. You worker of iniquity. You never participated. It was the whole talent thing. Jesus, we love you this morning. The book of Revelation is about the consummation of all that you've set out to accomplish. Forgive me, Jesus, for falling short deliberately and turning from. Would you grab me by the nap of the neck and yank me and put me in the midst of what you're doing? I want to be in the midst. I want to be in the mix of what you're doing. I don't have to be up front. I don't have to get the praise. But I want to contribute where you want me to contribute. I want to be where you want me to be. I believe Jesus in a non-arrogant way, but in a confident way that before the foundation of the world, you had this morning in your mind. And I am so honored and lucky to be a part of it. And I've not proclaimed my word, but your word. This is not my idea. This is your idea. It's not my dreams. It's your dreams. And I believe that you're speaking to people here this morning, and it's oh so significant. We want to respond. And we believe this week is crucial. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. We're not going to tarry very long. Uh, in a few moments, your pastor is going to come. And I'm under his authority this week. And, and he is your pastor. And he's the one that's shepherding and guiding us and through all this. And I'm lucky enough to come and bring the word. And others will bring the music. And others yet will play and hang out with teens. And, and we'll all participate in that as much as we can. But um, I'm going to return the authority of this service over to him at the end when he decides it's time to come and pray. But before that time, 
I want to give you an opportunity to respond. And heads are bowed and eyes are closed. And hey, this is just personal preference on my end. I stop rating my sermons by the response time a long time ago. So no pressure. You don't want to respond. I don't, hey, no big deal to me. I'm not going to beat myself up. I know it's truth. I know it's the word of God. It's changing my life. And I want to invite you in on it. And if you're sitting there and you're not, maybe you're not bad and I doubt if you are. And maybe you're not evil and I doubt if you are. But maybe you're sitting there saying, I don't have that in my life like I want it. And the person he's describing is not me. I'm telling you in the name of Jesus, you need to respond. And I see that you have altars here. So the appropriate manner of response is to come forward and and bow and, and, and expose the back of my neck and become vulnerable and say, Jesus, would you bring that about in my life? Would you produce that in me? Would you make me a place of absolute rule and authority under a king? Could I participate in the moving of God in my world? That we've been placed here for a reason, and maybe my job is not by chance, and maybe I'm not there just to make money, and maybe finances aren't the whole motivation. Maybe I'm a minister. Maybe I'm a priest. Maybe you want to use me. I want to give you that opportunity. We're going to have a song, maybe two. And I'm going to open up the altars if you would like to come. I'm going to respond this morning. Um, would you? Would you respond? Would you respond to what God's doing in your life? If he's beating on your heart, if he's dealing with you this morning, would you come? And in a few moments, when he feels it's time to close, the pastor's going to come and, and he's going to give us a final word and dismiss us um, to come back this evening. Jesus, we want to worship you. We want to tell you how wonderful you are. Make me a kingdom and priest. Pull me into your service. Give me a heart of praise. Let me get caught up in you. Let me feel your excitement. I want to see with your eyes and feel with your heart. I'm so tired of being the way that I've always been. I'm so tired of being the way that I've always been, caught up in the things that I've always been caught up in, living in the rat race and the, and the stress. and the, I'm so tired of all that. I'm so tired of being a victim of my circumstances and pinned under my bodily drives. and I'm so tired of all of that. Would you free me from that stuff? Free me to a life that you've called me to live, to live in a kingdom where you have the plan and you have the provision for the plan. and You give me, for what, I, you give me what I need in these days. Would you bring my body under your authority and plug me in? I so desperately want to be what you want me to be. This is our prayer this morning, and we want to respond to you. And we ask it in the name of your Son, Christ Jesus. Altars are open if you'd like to respond.